some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As detectives approached the lone car parked on an otherwise abandoned lover's lane, they knew what they would find. It was the same scene they had already encountered several times before. A man and a woman with multiple gunshot wounds fired by a mysterious killer given a haunting nickname by the press. At first blush, this might sound familiar, but this isn't the story of the Zodiac Killer terrorizing the Bay Area in 1969. No, this story serves as something of a prototype. Taking place more than 20 years prior and thousands of miles away in Texarkana at the Texas and Arkansas border. The portmanteau of a city was still recovering from World War II when, from February to May of 1946, the Phantom, as the killer had been dubbed, stalked the dark back roads, killing five people and wounding three more confounding authorities and terrorizing residents of what would later earn the eerie nickname of the town that dreaded sundown. Texarkana was born at the junction of two railroads in 1873. The name is a combination of Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana, in honor not just of Texas and Arkansas, the borders of which the city straddles, but also in honor of Louisiana, which is roughly 30 miles to the south. Over the past 150 years, Texarkana has boasted a number of famous residents, including ragtime composer Scott Joplin, some high-profile athletes I won't pretend to know, and the politicians Mike Huckabee and H. Ross Perot. In fact, it was when Perot was not quite 16 that his hometown first sensed something horrible was afoot. It began February 22, 1946. Jimmy Hollis, 25, and Mary Jean Larry, 19, had gone on a double date with Jimmy's brother, Bob, and Virginia Fairchild to see the Peter Lorre flick Three Strangers at the Paramount Theater in town. Jimmy and Mary Jean were married, but to other people. Like so many in this era, the two had married their respective partners at the height of wartime fear and excitement. But when peacetime came, those war couples realized they had nothing in common. Both Jimmy and Mary Jean were in the process of divorcing their spouses when they left the Paramount together. After the movie, they stopped at a cafe for sodas before Jimmy took his brother and Virginia home. It was after 11 when Jimmy parked the car off Richmond Road in a quiet spot without traffic or homes. Turning off the car, Jimmy said that he had a sudden desire to look at the stars, so he stepped out onto the dirt road. He was still outside of the car when a flashlight appeared only a few yards away. Jimmy could make out a man's form with one hand holding the flashlight and the other aiming a pistol directly at Jimmy's chest. The man demanded that Jimmy take off his pants, 
The request shocked Jimmy, so his first thought was to assume it was being pranked. But when the stranger moved closer, he repeated the request and added, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say, said the man brandishing a gun. From the infographics show. He wore a white pillowcase with eye slits cut into it. Jimmy Hollis stared at the man in disbelief. Mary Jean LeRae clutched Jimmy's arm in terror. The man pointed the gun, ready to fire. Jimmy and Mary Jean followed orders and got out of the car. Jimmy unbuckled his belt and dropped his pants. As soon as the pants hit the ground, Jimmy felt a blow to the back of his head. The force of the blow knocked his glasses off his face. Now on the ground, Jimmy was kicked repeatedly by the attacker with a few more hits to the head for good measure. Taking the sound of Jimmy's skull cracking for a gunshot, Mary Jean grabbed Jimmy's wallet out of his discarded pants and opened it to show the assailant they didn't have any money. Angered, the assailant attacked her with what she identified as an iron pipe. After a series of hits, he told her to run. Still wearing her high heels, she bolted. As she ran, she could hear the attack on Jimmy beginning again. Mary Jean felt a flicker of hope surge through her when she spotted the outline of a motel, but as she got closer, she realized it was abandoned. Then she heard running footfalls behind her. The assailant wasn't done with her yet. The second attack she endured was brutal. The man beat her physically and raped her with a foreign object. Mary Jean got to her feet and begged, go ahead and kill me. But then he left. Later, she said she thought headlights from a car scared the assailant away. As soon as he was out of sight, Mary Jean broke into a flat-out run to get help, which she found at the first house on Richmond Road. Back at the attack site, meanwhile, Jimmy managed to stand, still without his pants, and flag down a passing motorist. But the driver stopped him from getting in the car because, the motorist said, he didn't want to get any blood on his seats. While that guy told Jimmy he would call an ambulance as soon as he could, Mary Jean was the one who came through on that front. In a stupor, Jimmy stumbled to the ambulance, wondering why the motorist had acted so odd and whether he could have been the attacker himself. Amazingly, both Jimmy and Mary Jean survived, which is why we know what happened that night. On Sunday morning, less than 36 hours after the attack, the Texarkana Gazette ran a story about it. Both victims were transported to Texarkana Hospital. Jimmy was in critical condition. He was even comatose for a spell. He ended up being diagnosed with multiple skull fractures. He would spend the next three months receiving treatment for his injuries. Mary Jean was released the next day after receiving stitches for a scalp wound. Investigators first spoke with Jimmy about his memories of the attack about two weeks after it occurred. Since the attacker hit him in the head so early and blood had blurred his vision, Jimmy's memories were scattered at best. Officers asked Jimmy if he had any enemies, or perhaps Jimmy was trying to cover up for the assailant. Jimmy yelled, are you kidding? After what I've gone through, if it was my grandmother, I'd want to see her hang. Mary Jean, on the other hand, was interviewed the same night as the attack. You may be aware that eyewitnesses are historically unreliable, especially by those who are experiencing a hugely traumatic event. Mary Jean had only hours earlier been physically, emotionally, and sexually assaulted and wasn't in a great frame of mind for interrogation, but she was at least conscious, so police got her on record fast. Comparing Jimmy's recollections with Mary Jean's, 
their stories were generally consistent except for one detail. Jimmy described their attacker as a six-foot, tanned white male under 30, while Mary Jean claimed he was a light-skinned black man. Both said the man wore a white mask that covered his entire face, outside of holes cut for his eyes and mouth. But the racial disparity was confusing. It's worth noting, though, that Mary Jean did say outright that she based the attacker's race on her, quote, interpretation of the way he talked, end quote. As the weeks passed, the attack on Jimmy and Mary Jean was dismissed by most as a one-off that likely wouldn't repeat. But even in the most generous light, this seemed like wishful thinking at best. Despite generally portraying itself as a safe southern town where children could ride their bikes until the streetlights came on and no one locked their doors, Texarkana had several so-called danger zones or places more dangerous pursuits awaited, drinking, gambling, and other illegal activities that have a tendency to lead to violence. According to a Texas ranger sent to Texarkana, Quote, Texarkana has more human driftwood than any other town I've ever been in, other than San Antonio or El Paso. You have more petty thieves, more prostitutes, more pimps, more of an underworld than big cities, end quote. And yet, residents were shocked when the assailant struck again, and this time left no survivors. Spring was in the air when Navy veteran Richard Griffin, 29, picked up 17-year-old Pollyanne Moore for their date. She and Richard had dated for six weeks. March 23, 1946, a Saturday evening, Richard picked up Polly at 1215 Magnolia Street, where she was renting a room close to the defense plant. They met Richard's sister, Eleanor, and her boyfriend, Jesse Proctor, for dinner in town before going to a midnight movie alone. Richard and Polly went for an after-dinner snack at a cafe close to 2 a.m. From there, Richard drove to a parking area in a low, marshy area, according to James Presley's book, The Phantom Killer. Then came the next morning, a rainy Sunday. Around 8.30 a.m., a motorist passed a 1941 Oldsmobile sedan parked beside Rich Road and saw two figures inside who looked like they were asleep. Concerned, he stopped and got out to investigate. He quickly realized the two people weren't asleep. They were dead, slumped in pools of blood. He got back in his car and raced to town where he alerted the city police. The police called Sheriff Presley since the car was parked on county turf, roughly a mile outside city limits. If you're curious, the author James Presley is Sheriff Bill Presley's nephew. He grew up to become a journalist and author who wrote a book upon which a good chunk of this research is based. Anyway, investigators found man and a woman posed in the back of an Oldsmobile. The man knelt in front of the back seat, his forehead resting on crossed hands which lay on the back seat. The woman was sprawled face down on the back seat. Both victims were fully clothed. Both had been shot in the back of the head with a 32 caliber pistol. Despite the rain, there were huge blood stains on the ground, about 20 feet away from the car. The lack of a gun at the scene ruled out murder-suicide. The blood-stained dirt suggested that the couple had been slain outside then returned to the car. Based on the evidence, it appeared that the killer spent some time with Richard and Polly. Just like with Jimmy Hollis, the killer forced Richard to drop his pants. At some point after that, Richard got back into the car, though it's not known if it was under his own steam. With Richard's pants still around his ankles, the killer fired two shots into the back of his head. One can imagine Polly going through a similar trauma as Mary Jean, watching her date-slash-boyfriend being beaten from outside of the car. 
Blood patterns prove that Polly also was shot twice, but on a blanket outside of the car and placed inside after she was dead. A passing motorist spotted Richard's car and called the Bowie County Sheriff's Office as soon as he reached a phone. By the time Sheriff Bill Presley arrived on the scene, he found a crowd of curious observers, including people gathered around Richard's car, which the deputies who'd arrived before him had not cordoned off with police tape. Presley's first task was just to even reach the victims through the mass of gawkers. His second was to keep further motorists moving along past the crime scene. Richard was quickly identified as his ID was in his wallet, but Polly had no identification in her purse. She was eventually ID'd by her school ring, which had the initials Pam for Polly Ann Moore engraved on the inside. Sheriff Presley had little to start an investigation beyond the two victims, but began by contacting law enforcement at all levels. Local in both Arkansas and Texas, city, county, state, the Texas Department of Public Safety, and the FBI. The state's Bureau of Investigation promised to send Texarkana a Texas Ranger, as in an investigator, not the 90s TV show or the baseball team. For nearly 200 years, the Texas Rangers have been fighting to uphold law, order, and justice in Texas. This is from Ask History. Along the way, they've become internationally famous as the fearless, never-say-die protectors of the vast and rugged land they call home. Presley's call for help to other law enforcement agencies was, let's say, needed. Even with the seedy underbelly of Texarkana, local police did not have the kind of training needed for what would later be called a serial killer. Besides the lack of a police cordon, investigators left the car at the scene long enough for family and friends of Richard and Polly to arrive and witness the bloodstains. By happenstance, James King and his wife Sandy were driving James's tow truck to do their Sunday errands. Thinking there might be an accident that he could help with, James pulled over to talk to a deputy sheriff. Not a wreck, but James was directed to pull off the road and back up to the Oldsmobile. He and Sandy towed Richard's car to the Arkansas police station, but when James lowered the car and detached it, he and officers pushed it with their bare hands into a parking space to wait for fingerprint experts. Even back then, Sandy King recognized this as nuts. According to Presley's book, she said, quote, I don't understand why everybody would push the car by hand. They just put that many more fingerprints on it. End quote. Ranger Jimmy Gear arrived and immediately began to reprimand the police officers. After learning the scene was not roped off and secured, Gear yelled, Well, if you didn't do that, you destroyed all the goddamn evidence there was. He created a checklist to ensure the proper collection of evidence moving forward, like the removal of the bullets from Richard's head, which was something not done in Polly's case. She was buried with the evidence... So law enforcement simply assumed the same weapon was used to kill both Richard and Polly. When the ballistics report finally came back, the bullets were identified as having been fired by a 32 automatic pistol, a Colt or similar. Perhaps based on Ranger Gear's situation report, Dallas dispatched Ranger Dick Oldham to join Gear in Texarkana before the week was over. What's telling about that is that Texas had an old adage, one riot, one ranger. But within a week, two rangers were dispatched to the town. 
Gear and Oldham worked the case for three weeks with little development and no new attacks, at least not until April 12th. The victim was identified as 17-year-old James Paul Martin. This is Mike Morford of Citizen Detective, Digital Detective Agency on YouTube. Paul once lived in Texarkana with his parents and was in town visiting his friend, Tom Abitron. On the night before his death, he attended a local dance with 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker. A preliminary examination showed Paul was shot once in the face on the left side of his nose. Another bullet entered the back of his neck, exiting from the right parietal region of his skull close to the ear. He was shot a third time in the back, left shoulder, and a fourth bullet wound also was found on his hand. James Paul Martin was only in town because he had missed his old friends in Texarkana. A junior in Kilgore, Texas, he convinced his mom and his brother to let him borrow his brother's car and drive the 100 miles to his old hometown for the weekend, where he met up with Betty Jo, a junior at Texas High. The two had attended elementary school together, and he hoped to take her out before returning home. Betty Jo, who played the saxophone, was booked to play with a band that night, but James didn't know that when he made Betty Jo the star of his evening's plans. The band took the stage at 9 p.m. that Saturday night in April, and as Betty Jo was one of four women in the band, there were rules established by the group to ensure that they all made it home safely. On April 12th, things seemed to go smoothly. The group played for four hours, and as the time neared 2 a.m., they began Show Me the Way to Go Home, their sign-off song. The band members, who usually took turns escorting Betty Jo, each assumed the other had taken her home, so they both left, secure in the thought that their bandmates were safe. Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver rose early that Palm Sunday in 1946. It was just before 6 a.m. when they put their son in the car and cut through the park to reach the highway. They saw a man lying on the north side of the 6700 block of North Park Road. A closer look revealed blood on the man's clothing, and the Weavers realized they were looking at a dead body. The family traveled another 200 yards to the home of Harvey Word. Word called the Bowie County Sheriff's Office to report the Weaver's discovery. Responding officers confirmed the man was dead. The scene was familiar to the earlier attacks, but by no means a carbon copy. For example, Paul was on the side of the road, not in the car like Richard Griffin. And in fact, the car he was driving was about a mile away from his body, near tracks of the Kansas City Southern Railroad. Nothing at the scene hinted that Paul had a companion, but news began to spread that he might have been with Betty Jo, who hadn't returned home after the concert. In addition to law enforcement, church was canceled so parishioners could volunteer for search parties. Volunteer George Boyd, a neighbor of Betty Jo's, spotted Betty Jo through the trees, lying in the grass. She looked peaceful, except for the bullet hole in her face. FBI ballistics tests would reveal that the shells had microscopic markings matching the weapons used to kill Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore. Several fingerprints were collected from the car that didn't belong to Jimmy or Betty Jo. The fingerprints were compared to FBI and local files, but no matches were made. Sheriff Presley received the FBI report on April 20th and learned that Betty Jo was raped by the offender. A swab had been taken and ruled out Paul as a sexual partner. 
For the third time, authorities had little to go on. A second double murder and the fact that it occurred quickly after the first shocked the town. The death of Betty Jo, well-known and well-liked, horrified local teens. The nightlife of Texarkana slowed to a crawl. Families set early curfews for their teens and barricaded themselves in their homes. Hardware stores sold out of deadbolt locks, guns, and ammo. Reporters from newspapers around the world descended upon Texarkana. Within hours of finding Paul and Betty Jo, there were a total of seven Texas Rangers in town, along with four technical experts and a lab from Austin. To lead this team and run point, Dallas appointed Captain Manuel Lone Wolf Gonzalez to Texarkana. As if from a movie, Gonzalez literally rode into town on a white Arabian horse bedecked with silver buckles and a pearl-handed, gold-and-silver-plated forty-five caliber gun. To add to the melodrama, the Texarkana Gazette took the inevitable step of giving the killer a nickname, the Phantom. The name caught on and everyone began using it. The name appeared for the first time two days after the murder of Paul and Betty Joe, with the headline, Phantom Killer Eludes Officers. While Captain Lone Wolf Gonzalez and Sheriff Presley were officially leading the investigation together, the Rangers seemingly wanted to work independently. Gonzalez secured space in the storeroom of the pharmacy Boyd's Drugs, where the Rangers could meet without anyone in the sheriff's office noticing, or, as Gonzalez put it, where they, quote, could enter relatively unobserved, end quote. From this room, they planned an operation of epic proportions to entrap the killer. A ranger would be assigned a well-known parking area. On the designated evening, that ranger would drive out to that location and wait to be attacked. But wait, you might be wondering, I thought the killer didn't attack lone men. Oh no, each ranger would also be assigned a mannequin to serve as his date for the evening. In a similar move, other law enforcement agencies stage stakeouts, but with one male officer dressed in women's clothing. Neither of these tactics worked. Then came May 3rd, 1946. Virgil and Katie Stark settled in for a quiet Friday evening in their farmhouse, almost 10 miles from Texarkana city limits. With Virgil at 37 and Katie at 36, the two were older than the previous victims. Already married and established on their 500-acre farm, they were unlikely to be found canoodling on a lover's lane. Instead, the killer attacked them in their home, marking a huge deviation from his established M.O. Sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil had sat in his armchair reading the newspaper while Katie worked in another room doing a final cleaning for the day. She finished and went into the bedroom to change for bed. Virgil's back hurt from a long day in the field and in his welding shop, so he was sitting in a chair with an electric heating pad on. The chair faced away from a window, giving the killer a perfect opportunity for attack. The killer shot Virgil twice in the back of the head from outside of the window, killing him instantly. One bullet went through the heating pad, causing it to short circuit. From History From Home Hearing the glass break, Katie walked into the room to find her husband dead. She tried twice to call the police, but was shot in the face from the same window. She tried to find her pistol, but was blinded by blood, and hearing the phantom at the back door, Katie ran out the front to a neighbor's house, who, while armed, got help from other neighbors and took Katie to the hospital. 
Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis spoke to her in the operating room, but then couldn't speak to her afterward for four days. In those four days, news of the attack had spread through the town. The killer was back. Rumors began to spread that Virgil had heard suspicious noises outside of their home for several nights leading up to the attack that he had feared for their lives. When Sheriff Davis was able to interview Katie again, she discounted those rumors. This attack had come out of nowhere. Following the Starks' murder, mass hysteria took the town. People in town used to not even lock their doors, but now they were fortifying their houses, and the entire town was arming itself. There were now 47 law enforcement officers working on the case, with more on the way. A blockade was set on U.S. Highway 67 for a radius of miles in all directions of the crime scene. Several men in the general area were picked up for questioning, but by the end of the weekend, Texarkana's jails were empty. According to the Hope Star, a nearby Arkansas paper, bullet casings were collected from the scene, all 22 rifle casings. Some officers thought it may have been a 22 pistol, but most believed it to be a 22 rifle, in which it was believed that the victims had been shot with a 32 pistol. Another clue left at the scene was a flashlight, black with a red tip. The FBI lab found no fingerprints on the flashlight or the batteries inside. With few options and fewer clues, officers went to the Texarkana Gazette and asked if they would run a picture of the flashlight on page one. The editor went to the publisher, and the Gazette became the first paper in the U.S. to publish a spot color photograph. It wasn't a true color photo. It was created by combining two photos, one of the shiny part of the flashlight and one of the red handle. In the week following the attacks on the Starks, dozens of additional officers arrived, bringing with them the latest technology of the day, a mobile radio station, patrol cars equipped with three-way radios, and a teletype machine. The reward, first offered in March, was now in excess of $10,000, or about $155,000 in modern dollars. Local press, like the Hope Star, reported that the increased police presence made town residents sleep easier as the officers patrolled the streets and highways. A massive law enforcement presence combined with a serial killer and a huge reward drew nearly every intrepid reporter in the country. An article that appeared in the Baltimore Sun on May 5, 1946, detailed all of the attacks. In the June 10, 1946 issue of Life magazine, the headline read, Texarkana Terror. Southern City is panicked by killer who shoots according to schedule. The attention was unwanted by the townspeople and local law enforcement. They even started to resent Ranger Gonzalez. Of course, he didn't help himself when he was discovered reenacting the crime for a female photographer for life and time. Townsfolk thought he was looking for his 15 minutes of fame. In July 1946, police made an arrest, but not for murder. It was for auto theft. Max Tackett, the lead detective on the Starks' attack, connected a car stolen on the night of the Griffin Moore murders to 29-year-old Ewell Swinney. And when his wife Peggy came to claim that car, Tackett arrested her. Amazingly, it was her wedding day. She'd married Swinney just a few hours earlier. She was put into the county jail until her husband could be located. 
when salesmen from a local used car dealership came into Tackett's office to report a suspicious person who had come onto their lot trying to sell his car, Tackett set up a stakeout at the dealership. Yoel returned to the lot and was captured. He told Tackett, quote, You want me for more than stealing cars? I'll spend the rest of my life behind bars this time. End quote. He continued once in the cop car, quote, Hell, I know what you want me for. It's more than stealing cars. You don't electrocute someone for stealing cars, end quote. After a few days, Peggy told officers that she wanted to make a statement, which she did over two days, July 23rd to the 24th in 1946. Over that span, she gave three total statements, and while they didn't line up completely, they did show an overall pattern and largely left her husband without an alibi most murder nights. The one alibi she did give during the Griffin Moore murders was pretty weak. She said that they had gone to the movies that night, which was interesting because the victims that night had done the same. In her third statement, Peggy actually went into detail about the murders of Paul and Betty Joe. Ewell had gone to the park looking for someone to rob and chose Paul's car because he looked like he would have some money. Sheriff Presley took Peggy out to Spring Lake, the site of the murders she described in the most detail. She took them directly to the spot where Paul's car was parked and where officers had found the tracks of a woman's high-heeled shoes. Sheriff Presley asked if Ewell had removed anything from Paul's pocket other than his wallet. Peggy told him some papers or stuff, which sounded familiar to Presley, who had found Paul's state book at the scene and had kept it in his pocket. It was circumstantial evidence, but evidence nonetheless adding up against Ewell Swinney. When Tackett sat down with UL in an interrogation room, the suspect denied committing any of the murders, but readily admitted to stealing tons of cars. UL remained behind bars throughout that summer, and Texarkana residents quickly realized that weeks were passing without another killing. By August, much of the additional law enforcement had quietly gone home. Only two Texas Rangers remained in August, only one in September, and by October, no rangers were stationed in Texarkana. To them, it seemed clear. The killer was already in jail. Case closed. But legally, the actual case against UL was shaky. Remember, much of the case relied on Peggy's statements. His family had also zeroed in on providing him an insanity defense. On November 1st, Judge Dexter Bush granted a motion to move UL to the Arkansas State Hospital for observation, stating there were, quote, reasonable grounds for believing the defendant mentally incompetent, end quote. By month's end, he was charged with grand theft auto, to which he pleaded not guilty, but he was never charged with any of the murders. James Presley, in his book, The Phantom Killer, proposes that Sheriff Presley had a feeling murder charges against UL would never stick, and so he tried to think of an alternative way to remove him from the streets. The sheriff's plan centered around a Texas law, a life sentence as a habitual criminal. UL was found guilty and on April 18, 1947, sent back to jail for life as a habitual offender. James Presley implies in his book that this scheme to get UL behind bars by any means necessary was essentially a plea deal. UL wanted to avoid the electric chair. Law enforcement in multiple jurisdictions wanted him off the streets. There was one final attack mentioned in local newspapers that some thought might signal the return of the Phantom, 
It happened on a Sunday morning in November 1947, more than a year after the first attack. An unknown assailant attacked a 42-year-old man and his 31-year-old woman companion. Other than the victims being a man and woman, though, there aren't many similarities. The general consensus in the case is that after Ewell's arrest, the phantom killer never struck again. Ewell Swinney was not ever convicted for what came to be known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. And without a conviction to point to, many residents assumed the killer was still out there, leaving them to continue to fear the darkness. This all became a little meta when, in 1976, Texarkana native Charles Pierce released the film The Town That Dreaded Sundown, based on the 1946 crimes and Gonzalez's investigation. Pierce held the world premiere in Texarkana on December 17, 1976, before releasing the film in theaters on Christmas Eve. In 2003, the Texarkana Department of Parks and Recreation chose the film for their annual Movies in the Park. In the years since, residents have gathered each summer to watch the horror of their ancestors. The majority of law enforcement officers connected to the case had died by 1980, with only a few reaching the 21st century. Sheriff Presley called his term as sheriff the worst four years of his life, including his time in the trenches of World War I. As such, he didn't seek re-election, instead shifting to selling cars in the 1960s. Mary Jean Larry married and moved to Montana, but died of cancer at the age of 38 in 1965. Her date that night, James Hollis, also married, twice, and fathered four children. He worked for the government, including a short stint with NASA in its early days. He died in 1975 at the age of 54. Katie Starks attended business school as soon as she was well enough. In 1955, she remarried a man who worked at a milk company. She died in 1994 at the age of 84 and was buried next to Virgil. Her second husband was buried on the other side of her when he died in 2009. According to Katie, her life was mostly normal, but her nights were haunted by that night in 1946. Any noise at night would wake her from a sound sleep. But let's not forget those who never had the chance to marry, have children, or work through the trauma of their attacks. World War II veteran Richard Griffin, who was starting his own construction company with his brother, killed on March 24th. Pollyann Moore, only 17 when she was killed, had worked at an ammunition plant during the war. Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, both incredibly young, didn't even get the chance to decide what they wanted to do after high school. Betty Jo was only 15, but an ambitious 15. She played in a band that was solidly booked. Who knows what she could have accomplished had she made it home that night. As for Ewell Swinney, who's largely regarded as the likely culprit in these cases, he eventually was released from prison because of some Supreme Court rulings in the 1960s that altered the legal rights of criminal defendants. Ultimately, after serving 26 years in 1973, a judge granted Ewell writ of habeas corpus and ordered his release. Sadly, Ewell went back to his criminal ways and was in and out of jail for the next 20 years. He only stopped committing crimes after he suffered a stroke. He died in 1977, taking with him whatever answers he might have had.
To research the story, Jennifer Erdman, assistant professor and chair of the History-slash-Political Science Department at Notre Dame of Maryland University, read James Presley's book, The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, A Story of a Town in Terror. I also watched several documentaries and read contemporary news coverage. Hats off to the infographics show summation. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>